blessed Saturday as we approach the Feast of the Assumption, which will be on Monday. Hopefully there will be no more bad news out of Rome issued that day, which they tend to like to do, especially on Marian feast days. But I have for you today a excerpt from a speech given by Pius XII on the liturgy. And it reminds us that the liturgy doesn't belong to a faction in the church, that it is the part of the treasury of the entire faithful. It reminds us that the Pope does have the right to govern the Mass, which is not something anyone has ever really disputed anyway. It reminds us that the bishops have a duty to uphold the norms of the Mass, which it does appear to be in dispute in our time, unfortunately. It's an interesting address he gave. It's part of a larger address that is entirely too large for YouTube, so... Um, I may bring parts of it to your attention over the course of the next few months. For now, we have Pius XII addressing a Eucharistic Congress in September 1956, towards the end of his pontificate. As we have said in the encyclical Mediator Dei, the liturgy is a vital function of the Church as a whole and not of a single group or movement only. The sacred liturgy is the public worship of the mystical body of Jesus Christ in the entirety of its head and members. The mystical body of Christ lives on the truth of Christ and graces which are diffused in its members, giving them life and unity within themselves and with their head. This is the thought of St. Paul when he says in his first epistle to the Corinthians, All things belong to you, and you to Christ, and Christ to God. Therefore, everything is directed towards God, his service, and his glory. The church, filled with the gifts and the life of God, devotes itself with an interior and spontaneous movement to the adoration and praise of the infinite God, and through the liturgy renders him, as from a society, the worship that is due to him. To this unique liturgy, each of the members, whether invested with episcopal power or belonging to the body of the faithful, brings all that he has received from God, all the resources of his mind, his heart, his achievements. The hierarchy, in the first place, holds the depositum fide, the deposit of the faith, and the depositum gratia, the treasury of grace. From this deposit of faith, the truth of Christ as contained in scripture and tradition, it derives the great mysteries of faith and enshrines them in the liturgy, particularly the mysteries of the Trinity, the Incarnation and the Redemption, but it would be difficult to find a truth of the Christian faith which is not somehow expressed in the liturgy, whether it is the readings from the Old and New Testaments in the Mass and the Divine Office, or the riches which mind and heart discover in the Psalms. The solemn liturgical ceremonies are, besides, a profession of faith in action. They express the great truths of faith concerning the inscrutable designs of God's generosity and his inexhaustible goodness to men, concerning the love and mercy of the Heavenly Father for the world, to save which he sent his Son and delivered him to his death. Thus the Church and the liturgy abundantly dispenses the treasuries of the deposit of the faith, the truth of Christ. Through the liturgy also are poured out the treasures of the depositum gratia, the treasury of grace, which our Lord transmitted to his apostles, sanctifying grace, the virtues of gifts, the power to baptize, to confer the Holy Spirit, to forgive sins in the sacrament of penance, to ordain priests. It is in the heart of the liturgy that the celebration of the Eucharist, sacrifice, and banquet is accomplished. It is in it also that all the sacraments are conferred, and that the Church, by the sacramentals, multiplies copiously the blessings of grace in the most diverse circumstances. The care of the hierarchy extends still further to everything which contributes to the greater beauty and dignity of the liturgical ceremonies. 
whether in the matter of places of worship, of furnishings, of liturgical vestments, of sacred music, or sacred art. If the hierarchy communicates by the liturgy the truth and the grace of Christ, it is for the faithful, on their part, to accept these wholeheartedly and to translate them into living realities. Everything which is offered to them, the graces of the sacrifice of the altar, the sacraments and sacramentals, they receive not in a passive manner in allowing them simply to flow into them, but in collaborating in them with their whole will and all their powers, and especially in participating in the liturgical offices, or at least in following their unfolding with fervor. They have contributed in a large measure and continue to contribute by a constant effort to add to the external things of worship, to construct churches and chapels, to direct, decorate them, and to enrich the beauty of the liturgical ceremonies by all the splendors of sacred art. The contributions which the hierarchy and the faithful bring to the liturgy are not added as two separate entities, but represent the collaboration of members of the same organism which act as a single living unit. The pastors in the flock, the teaching church, and the church which is taught, form but one in the same body of Christ. Thus there is no reason for maintaining a lack of confidence. Rivalries, oppositions, open or hidden, whether in thought, in manner, or speaking, or in acts. Among the members of one body there ought to reign before everything else concord, unity, and collaboration. It is in this unity that the church prays, offers sacrifice, sanctifies itself, so that it can be asserted with good reason that the liturgy is the work of the whole church. But, we must add, the liturgy is not, however, the whole church. It does not exhaust the scope of her activities. To be sure, by the side of the public worship, that of the community, there is a place for the private worship which the individual gives to God in the secret of his heart, or expresses by his exterior acts, and which has as many variations as there are Christians, although it proceeds from the same faith and the same grace of Christ. The truth not only tolerates this form of worship, but she has fully acknowledged it, and recommends it without in any way taking away the preeminence of liturgical worship. But when we say that the liturgy does not exhaust the scope of the church's activity, we are thinking above all of its task of teaching and pastoral care, of the feed the flock that God has entrusted to you. See 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. We have recalled the role which the magisterium, the depository of the truth of Christ, carries out through the liturgy. The influence of the authority of government on it also is evident, since it belongs to the popes to examine current forms of worship, to introduce new ones and to regulate the arranging of worship, and to the bishops to watch carefully that the canonical prescriptions relating to divine worship are observed. But the office of teaching and governing extends further than this. To be assured of this, it suffices to cast a glance at the canon law and what it says of the pope the Roman congregation of bishops, of councils, of the magisterium, and of ecclesiastical discipline. From looking at the life of the church, one comes to the same conclusion. In our two allocutions of May 31st and November 2nd, 1954, on the triple office of the bishop, we expressly insisted on the scope of his charge, which is not limited to teaching and governing, but which embraces as well all the rest of human activity, insofar as religious and moral interests are involved. If then the tasks and interests of the church are at this point universal, the priests and the faithful, in their mode of thinking and acting, will beware of falling into narrowness of view or misunderstanding. Our encyclical Mediator Dei had already corrected certain erroneous assertions, which were tending either to direct religious teaching and pastoral activity along an exclusively liturgical path, or to raise obstacles to the liturgical movement, which was not understood. In fact, there is no real divergence between the purpose pursued by the liturgy 
by the other functions of the church. There is a real diversity of opinions, but this does not present insurmountable obstacles. We hope that these considerations will suffice to show that the liturgy is the work of the whole church, and that all the faithful members of the mystical body should love it, and take part in it, and understanding nonetheless the tasks of the church extend beyond it. And that was Pope Pius Twelfth, an excerpt from a famous address of his to a liturgical congress in Rome in 1956. The, at the time, was the he was addressing the uh, what was called generally the liturgical movement, which on the surface was helping to revitalize the liturgy, but would also by that point was serving for the groundwork for all the changes that came a decade later. I doubt he saw the uh, the new mass of Bugnini coming <laughs> in 1956, otherwise he may have had some different things to say here. But what he is saying here is essentially true, that it is the job of the Pope to govern the Mass, it is the job of the bishops to enforce the norms of the Mass, and that the laity are to participate in the Mass, and of all the, of all the things he said here about the treasures we get from the Mass. Which is why it's so heartbreaking to see that in most of the world, only 10% of the Catholic faithful go to Mass, at least regularly. And in America, it's about one in three Catholics. Which makes us, I guess, better off in the United States than in much of the rest of the world. It's food for thought, I guess. Let me know what you think of this in the comments, please. And like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.